Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. Paula, to start with, can you explain what you do as though I'm a a five-year-old? Thinking about a five-year-old child, I help people to agree things in a more friendly manner so that they can work better together. Do you think your five-year-old self would understand that? I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That is actually probably one of the best answers we've we've had to that question. And it maybe just to clarify, Paula, you are a are you a solicitor or barrister by profession? So I'm a solicitor by trade, but I'm using my legal skills. So I'm 25 years qualified now. I worked in industry, big industry for many years, but for the last four or five years, I've been working in legal innovation. I used to be a transactional contract lawyer, and now I'm looking at contracts saying, how can we make them feel, work, and substantively be better so that it's easier to do business through contracts? Absolutely. And you've worked closely with Stefania, who we also had on the podcast. And I'm still working increasingly, Stefania and I working very closely together. We've got some very big, exciting projects coming through for 2024. So delighted with that. Yeah, sounds good. And on this session, this episode today, we're going to be talking about contract risks and just the approaches to contracts. And I'm going to ask you to start off and talk to me about the difference between real risks and imagined risks when it comes to contracts? Well, the difference is, first and foremost, oftentimes you don't know what they, the real risks or the imagined risks are. And it varies from company to company. So occasionally when I've been simplifying a contract, a lawyer had said to me from an organization, what are my, because I will say, oh, maybe this isn't a real risk. Is it a real risk or an imagined risk? And they'll say, well, I don't know. Tell me. You don't know that off the cuff. You have to do the work behind the contract. And that means collating the data. And historically, Daniel, that's why I feel that the vast majority of organizations I work with, and I do work with some really big international organizations, they don't know whether they're operating to the right risk profiles. And the reason is historically companies have not been good at collating data around risk. So when I talk about it in relation to contracts, you have a story of a contract. You have the beginning of the contract at its inception and you have the end when the term ends, when it's implemented, when everything, both customer and supplier have done what they've set out to do. And oftentimes, all of those data points, they're not actually collated, they're not managed, they're not analyzed, looking at, well, where were our pain points pre-signature? How have they translated into post-signature actions? Where are our problems? And how much have we had to rely on the pre-signature stuff when we're trying to sort out the post-signature stuff. And to be honest, you might say, oh, that's a huge task. Actually, interestingly, when I was at IBM, at one point, we tried to put a database together to actually get the contract negotiators and the lawyers to input data 
into sort of where was the starting point in negotiations, where were their endpoints, and then where were the problems down the road. But the reality is, yes, we set up the database, but nobody input the data. I actually think there's a brilliant opportunity out there for a very clever technologist to make it really easy to collate that data across organizations. And I think that could be transformative. You hear about CLM saying, we're introducing more analytical tools and AI into our CLMs in order to give back results on risk. But I'm still not convinced they're actually collecting the right data real time such that it could have an impact on future outcomes. And that's where I'd like companies to focus more. Yeah, I will make sure my product team listen to this recording in this episode because I think it's a great point you raised this last time when we spoke and yeah, there's a big gap there. One thing I wanted to ask you, Paula, because we had a really, it's kind of funny, but a really good conversation was around imagined risks and definitions. And I kind of just want to leave it there and pass it over to you to talk about how definitions, I think you used the word safety blanket previously around those. Yeah. It's interesting that you say, because literally this afternoon, actually quite a big client has now asked me to go through their very dense procurement contract. It's a very long one where they have five pages of definitions. And I think I told you this, Daniel, for another international organization, we started off with four and we ended up with half a page. And one could say, okay, well, that's a bit superficial. Why are you focusing on definition? First and foremost, I think pages and pages of definition really interfere with the readability and understandability of a contract. Everybody forgets what the definition is, then they have to keep going back and looking at it. And actually, a lot of lawyers have grown up thinking, if we define everything within an inch of its life, that means we're more protected. Oftentimes, we're not, because one thing we know from like COVID-19, recent wars, etc. Things keep happening in the world that we haven't actually thought about. We haven't prepared for it. So the forced New York clauses in a lot of contracts didn't actually cater for all the different things that came up when COVID-19 happened. So I think that the everyday meaning of most of the definitions in contracts work. Now, there are exceptions to that, like your group. Who is your group? Or who is your extended group? Of course, some definitions are necessary. But I'm thinking that oftentimes, rather than helping an organization control their risk, they're actually often adding to it. And understanding the contract is really key. You can put whatever you want in the contract, but your stakeholders internally who are managing the contract don't really understand properly how it works and your customers or your suppliers don't understand properly in, in the context of procurement, then you're building in risk. So I'm quite passionate about definitions. And actually, it's amazing when organizations embrace it. They all pick up the contract and think, yes, I can read this now without spending hours looking back at how each word is specifically defined. The readability point is just so important there because, like you said, yeah. the back and forth between numerous definition pages is a nightmare, really, <laughs> to be honest. And whilst we're talking sort of about the layout, the way in which we're drafting contracts, how can we reimagine the way contracts are drafted to align with these real risks as opposed to these sort of imagined risks? We've kind of spoken about the definition bit, 
that kind of feels like potentially maybe not a quick win. <laughs> I appreciate when you've got five pages of definitions that you maybe you're relying on. Yeah. But how can we kind of take that that ethos and pull it through to the rest of the contract document? Yeah, well, I think, again, I'm going back to the data point because you can't draft a template around risk unless you know what your risk profile is. And that varies from company to company. So you do need some data to fully understand that. Increasingly, and I told you this when we chatted before, I got involved for some big clients and doing these balance checks on contracts and templates. I'm convinced, first and foremost, most organizations, their templates are not built around real risk at all. We know that from the get-go. They've been built on precedent after precedent. They haven't really changed that much over time. Now, some organizations are exceptional and they have done the work. But I know some in-house lawyers who are drafting templates based on what they did two companies back. Oh, yeah. Well, how is that really catering for current risk? And let's face it, the world has changed massively in terms of what risk was 20 years ago to what it is now. So you do need to put in that work and try to understand the risk. And that's done through data. Interestingly, I had another conversation with a big client of ours recently, and I was doing a balance check. And I was saying, well, I actually think you can probably leave this clause out. Based on what I know about your company, I don't think this is a real risk. And the senior lawyer said to me, but how do I know? So when you think about it, the lawyer who's worked for that company doesn't understand. And I'm not blaming the lawyer because I challenge that most people within the organization don't know what they're real around. And that's why the work needs to be done beforehand. And then once you have that data, if you do have some data, you can actually do some quite transformative things. So I have worked with organizations where they have provided me with some data. And I don't look at the contract then just about what I can leave in. I look at what can I leave out. And that's another data point to collect along the way? What's the impact, both financially, reputationally, if I leave out a clause? Now, that can be sometimes harder to collect that data. But I can tell you, if you have everybody working with an app, quickly inputting data as they go along through the story of the contract, it isn't long before you can collect that type of data. And then sometimes you can even use industry data. So I'll tell you an interesting story for that. When I worked at IBM, I was heading up cloud and solutions and SaaS across Europe. When GDPR came in or was starting to come in, it was 2018, but when we were starting to look at contracts, IBM was very much in a big growth spurt for selling SaaS and cloud. Now, SaaS and cloud is traditionally one-to-many product, quite commoditized. But all of a sudden, the big customers of IBM said, well, I'm much more at risk now with GDPR because I'm going to be fined if there's a data breach. So I want you to step up to uncap liability, IBM, because you've got my data in your cloud. Now, the issue is IBM had and other organizations like them have not priced uncap liability for every client into their price point for those products. And it was unrealistic to ask a supplier to take on that level of risk. 
So what I did for the bigger customers, and a lot of them were banks at this point, HSBC published some data around the average cost of a data breach. And this was some years ago. This was back in 2018. It might have shifted now. But the published data was around £3 million, the average cost of a serious data breach for the bank. So then I was able to show the customers that data. I was able to go back and say, okay, I can't give you uncapped liability, but how about I give you a 3 million cap per breach with an overall lifetime cap of 10 million? And then if we've reached 10 million, we're sort of covering off most of your risk per breach. And if we've reached 10 million, you're going to want to terminate the contract with IBM. And I can tell you, hands on heart, it worked every time. And the reason it did is because it was reasonable data using that to draft around real risk rather than an imagined risk of I need uncapped liability, when in fact they didn't. That's actually a really good point in a way of looking at it. I feel like a lot of teams... You know, both across procurement and legal will often say, well, we just don't have anything to hand. We don't have the data to hand. But like you said, if you find a credible source of information, of data and use that, it just makes sense to do so, right? That's a really good example there. Yeah. And I think it's just making contracts real, more agile. And that has a really positive impact also on business relationships. Absolutely. So I want to ask you one more question around the approach to contracts, which is the biggest challenges. I appreciate that data collection and just getting hold of data is probably the major issue in terms of trying to figure out where your risks actually are. Are there any other challenges that you can think of? Yeah, and I'm going to say that because I myself am a lawyer, but lawyers are a challenge. (laughs) And I can say that I'm a lawyer. Yes. And I can understand why they're a challenge, particularly now I'm wondering about in 20 years time where we have a newer generation of lawyer who's actually been brought up in gen AI and perhaps AI can help us. I would imagine over time it can help us both collect the data and analyze the data so that we can have an effect on outcome. But the traditional lawyer profile and how we've been trained is very much to sort of dot all our I's and cross all our T's. So Stefania and I, when we give training on simplification and redesign and repurposing your contracts to actually work better for business, we talk about the reactive lawyer and the proactive lawyer and the sort of paradigm shift. Traditionally, we have been trained as reactive lawyers and we use those precedents that I've been talking about. And Stefania and I also talk about, we mentioned earlier on, this comfort blanket. If IBM is paying me X number of pounds per year to protect their interests, then to look after my job, I'm going to put everything I can in the contract to make sure they're protected in all instances. But is that really in the interests of actually building the relationship with the customer or the supplier as working collectively together? Perhaps not. And so first and foremost, we have to get by the lawyers. But then we also have to think about, and I think this is for CEOs and senior management in organizations to take greater ownership of risk. Some organizations allow the lawyers to be arbiters of what stays in or what goes out. Some don't. Some say the risk ultimately lies with the business. But what I've noticed in big organizations is the business won't do anything 
unless the lawyers say so. So what I would say, if I'm starting a business out there, I want senior management team to take more management of risk with a top-down approach, or using certainly the business and the lawyers to help them collect the data. And it is possible, but I think challenge out there to a good technologist, go through the story of the contract and think of a way to actually gather that data really quickly and use AI to analyze it in a meaningful way. And then feedback that risk profile to the management team, senior management team, and say, okay, go figure, work it out. You're in charge, ultimately, of the risk profile for your company because it has a huge impact on business. It's a really good point. And the scenario you kind of showed off there was you would have an open loop, right? Between legal and whoever in the business, you're just constantly going between the two. I've seen it happen and just means nothing happens typically. No, exactly. Have you been in organizations where that email loop goes around? So they keep copying each other in and nobody really wants to make the decision. And to be honest, I understand that, particularly in large organizations, making decisions is a bit scary. Because you do know if you're the one. Personally, I quite liked making decisions. And I think (laughs) one of my sort of strengths was actually moving things on because I was decisive. And maybe sometimes, certainly in the early stages of my career, I was overly decisive too quickly. And I did learn that actually collecting that data is key. But you do need to be able to make decisions. And the loop between the lawyer and the business often goes around the loop and people get scared and therefore they err on the side of caution, which can have inhibiting effect on growing your business or doing the right thing for your business. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. Paula, we're just going to finish off with two really quick fire questions here. So the first one is, what's your favorite piece of tech at the moment? So software, hardware, what's your favorite? Well, I'll tell you what my favorite, and it's a really easy one, is kind of Zoom or Teams or anything that I can talk online face-to-face with people. To be honest, I have built my business. I went out as a consultant on my own for the last couple of years, and I have built almost all my client relationships through this medium. I found it much, much better than phones increasingly when we're doing work together, the added features of Zoom, how you can share, how you can collaborate. For me and my business and my experience, these are the most important tools for me. It's a good point. It's very polarizing, this topic of uh, remote versus, you know, being in the office all the time or in person. We're fully remote, a gatekeeper. I've only met everyone like once or twice in almost a year and a half here. And we, like you say, we use all of these uh, platforms to collaborate. I'm with you. They're incredible. Have they worked well for you? Do you feel you know? Oh, your, yeah. I mean, I think I know people I work with. Yeah, absolutely. I still see people from my previous role before I joined Gatekeeper. We still meet up yeah. and we maybe met twice, three times in the yeah. year and a half I was at that role as well. That was a fully remote role. So yeah, it makes it very easy when you meet them. It's sometimes a little bit awkward still because some things don't come across, but I think by and by it's incredible. Well, I mean, I'm not negating meeting in the flesh. And recently I went to the digital design conference in Finland and I met so many people I'd been working with. And it was just so lovely to shake their hand, give them a hug. But 
when people say to me, you can't build relationships through this medium, I dispute that. I have built a lot of really good working relationships. Long may continue. Yeah, completely with you on that. And uh, Paula, the last question is always the weirdest question for me to ask. So I'm a procurement genie and I can grant you one wish. What would your wish be? I want large companies to embrace more balanced procurement contracts I'm talking about, to ensure that there's adequate room for proper competition from suppliers. And I mean room for SMEs to get involved. Because what I find, I think I mentioned to you before, Daniel, I've done some work with TermScout, where they actually benchmark standard templates from suppliers And we still see too much of it. The big suppliers know they have the buying power. And so therefore, they impose unreasonable terms, to be honest, on smaller companies. And I've seen it. Some of the smaller companies will just sign up to anything and query how effective that is, because it does mean the balance of risk is just unfair. And if something goes wrong, a company can go under. But it's also some companies who are savvy just won't bid for the work because they say it's just it's more than my business is worth because the terms are so unreasonable. And I think we're at a stage now where we need more data, but we have more data than we used to have. And I think if you truly want to collaborate in a business relationship, then the contracts must be more balanced and fair. So that would be my wish. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of what TermScout would do. And you just made me recall, I was working with a startup SaaS provider in Europe in my previous role, and they pretty much accepted any change I made to their contract because we were bigger and they wanted to work with us. But I actually ended up just reducing some of the liability provisions more so because there was no real risk coming back to the theme of this conversation. And we made a few changes for them that were far better, I think, for a startup to help them with cash flow and bits like that. And then on renewal, it was just so easy as well. We did a one-year deal, super easy renewal, yeah. built a really good relationship just from being a little bit more human and a little bit more balanced around the contracts. Yeah, but to me, that shows proactive engagement. You have made the paradigm shift to proactive. And ultimately, when you're contracting with someone, I find it just incredible. When you think about it, a contract, I mean, we have contracts every day. You know, we even have a contract between us. It's a verbal contract. It's not a written one about how we're doing this podcast. Everything involves contract friendships, relationships, marriages. So why does anybody think when it comes to a contractual relationship, it's right for one to completely dominate the other? In order to enter into anything in life, ideally you have some, I get something, you get something back. I give something, you give something back. We all know that those kind of relationships work better. So why not in business? Yeah, I'm with you there, Paula. And I just want to say thank you. This has been marvelous to hear you talk about these things. I I don't think enough people across procurement and legal are thinking like this. So that's why I was really keen to get you on to uh, discuss this. It's been great, Daniel. And I want to go out there and talk about, yeah, we really need to close this gap between real and imagined risk. It's an important point. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you, Paula. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeper.com.
hq.com. And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.